We're going to do breakfast, kind of like we did at Thanksgiving. We're going to do breakfast foods rather than lunch-type foods, which I think we were kind of planning anyway, maybe. At least that was in my head. I don't know if I ever actually communicated that. So luckily, nobody has signed up, I don't think, on the sign-up sheet yet, so perfect. Um, but we're going to do like breakfast-type you know, foods, so kind of like we did Thanksgiving for that and uh, because we want you to still be good when you go to your family. So um, that is... Uh, April 9th, April 9th at 10 a.m. So uh, go ahead and prepare for that. Sign-up sheet is on the events tab on the app, or you can, um, uh, we'll send the link on the group message again. So anyway, there's that. Uh, Tuesday night, we'll be back here and doing our normal thing on Tuesday, and then um, giving. That's what we need to do, and then we'll jump into the message. So is anybody giving in the service today? Um, Tim, the faithful, and, of course, the offering bucket's back there, too. So, okay, okay. Anybody else? All right, we're super professional this morning. Um, okay, awesome. If you give online, I know that's, like, most of you, thank you for doing that. And uh, I just, the Lord's going to really bless you for that. And um, so, thank you. Uh, Colossians 1, 13 through, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to read, actually, because I don't want to scare you. Okay, Colossians 1. And I'm going to start at verse 13, so I'm going to give you a chance to turn there, but I'm just going to start by reading it. And I'm going to admit, this is my bread, what we're going to talk about today, my bread and butter. So I've been super excited about it, and um, once we start talking, you'll see why. Very familiar stuff, but uh, just a little deeper than we've been. So um, Colossians 1, that's right after Philippians, if you need to know where that's at. And if you don't know where Philippians is, just look in your little index. Um, let me make sure I don't want to say anything before we read this. No. All right. Everybody got it? Y'all still turning? Good, good, good. Okay, cool. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. Starting in verse 13. Uh, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He has, past tense, he has rescued us from the power of darkness. Uh-oh. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to go ahead and move this over here. <clears throat> I love that. I love that. He has already done it. No need to lift your voice. All right, 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. The firstborn of all creation. For in him, just listen to this language Paul uses. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Where were they created? In him. Interesting. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through, or excuse me, and through him, yeah, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Whew, man. Let me just write this down so you have a little reminder because it's going to make sense in a second. So the fullness, oh, nope, and I don't even have a eraser. Okay. So the fullness of God is in him. Now, here's why that's really interesting, okay? Because in a second, you're going to find out where he is. So here we go. Verse 24. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. That's a really big verse. I won't get into it, but that's, that's some interesting language there too. 25, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, we're going to come back to this, that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here's the mystery hidden for the ages. Ready? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the fullness of God is in Christ, but Christ is in us. And if Christ is in us and the fullness of God is in Christ, what is within us? The fullness of God. Okay. Which is the hope of glory? It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires me uh, spires within me. Two one, for I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. There it is again. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. I got to write this down. Man, I just saw something I didn't see before. Sorry, give me a second. Okay, sorry about that. Verse 8 or 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority." Okay, now here's what's interesting. I'm not going to preach on this, but just as a side note, uh, how many of us in the past were taught this verse, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. We were taught that verse as in thinking Paul is saying, uh, make sure no one in the world tricks you into following the world. 
Paul is talking here about religion. See to it no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. What is he talking about? Primarily, I believe, um, and this is pretty scholarly as well, um, there's back and forth on this. I believe he's talking about those who are trying to get those that are in the church to convert to Judaism, to convert to following the law. So make sure that no one keeps you, keeps you, takes you excuse me, captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. What tradition? The law. So interesting, right? Because ironically, usually the people that use that verse that talk about not following the world are the ones that that verse is actually talking about. So anyway, um, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead when you were dead in the trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. There he is again. He's building on this argument about not following legalism. Okay, But is that not amazing? When you were dead, God made you alive. When you were dead, and if you were dead, that means you could do nothing to make yourself alive because you were dead. When you were dead, God made you alive with him. Come back to that too. Um, He set this aside, the legal demands, nailing it to the cross, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. I, I love that verse. That is so sick. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food, and drink, or observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, hello, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels dwelling in visions, puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows with a growth that is from God. Hmm. Verse 20. If with Christ, I'm almost done, you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply, listen to this, human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. This is awesome. 
This is why Colossians, I think, is becoming, becoming not yet, but becoming one of my favorites. 3-1, last couple of verses. So if you have been raised with Christ, this is his argument for the whole thing. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Oh, man, 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 there's so much. I shouldn't have read that much because now my mind's just... Do you know, but just these things have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value. <laughs> I mean, I, how many of you, when you read that, your mind is just going down a list? My, my mind is, you know what I'm saying? Don't do this. Don't drink. Don't watch these movies. Don't go to this place. Don't go to this place. In fact, growing up, one of the things was um, we, didn't, we wouldn't go eat at a restaurant that had a bar in it. So for years, we couldn't go to Applebee's, for example, because it had a bar in it. You know what I'm saying? And, and they, they appear to have wisdom, but they are of no value. You know what I'm saying? I mean, okay. So let me give you a review from last week, and then I'll, ta- I'll talk about this. Last week, we talked about the church being a microcosm of the creation. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. Uh, We see this in the very beginning when the first couple, Adam and Eve, are told to take the reality of the garden and be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the rest of the earth. That's Genesis 1.28. We again see the same language after the flood narrative when Noah is commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth with righteousness. That's Genesis 1.9. From the beginning, we see what starts as a concentrated substance is always intended to permeate the whole. We see this from the very beginning. But not only in Genesis, but in the nation of Israel. We see a chosen and small group of people who are God's exclusive covenant partner. Nevertheless, they were but the beginning of what would soon become inclusive to everyone. This is what Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. And that's talking about roles, not transgenderism or whatever. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He says this again in Ephesians 2, 15 through 16. He has abolished the law with its commands and ordinance so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Likewise, in the body of Christ himself, we see represented the entire human race, so that what was finished in one, Christ, might be finished in all. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and lived among us. Flesh here is the Greek word sarx, just to review, and that is the substance of what is human. It's human nature. So the nature of God, the pattern that God does all throughout Scripture uses, is that he starts with a small, concentrated, and pure substance and allows that substance to permeate and work its way through everything else until everything else is transformed into what was initiated by the original concentrated substance. 
Should I read that one more time? Let me read it one more time. It's a big run-on sentence. The, the character of God, the nature of God, is always to start with a small, concentrated, and pure substance, so yeast, leaven, and bread, etc., and allow that substance to permeate and work its way through everything else until everything else is transformed into what was initiated by the original concentrated pure substance. This happens even in our own lives. So anytime you have, you know, for example, started small and worked your way up. So maybe that's like money. Maybe you're trying to save a thousand bucks in an emergency fund, right? You don't just throw a thousand bucks. Usually you start with 20 bucks a month or whatever. And then eventually you work your way up to a thousand, right? Or maybe even in dieting. This is what I've been doing this year. And I feel so proud of myself because I've never been good at dieting and I've laid down the sweets. But mostly, um, unless they're vegan, then I feel better about eating them. But I shouldn't because Oreos are vegan. But anyway, um, even in dieting, though, you don't just like wake up and say, I want to lose 30 pounds and then psh, 30 pounds. That would be awesome. You know, what I mean, that'd be amazing. But you start with one and then five and then 10 and eventually you get to where you're going. We see this pattern play out all throughout our lives without even thinking about it. You know what I mean? We, God always brings us to a place where we start with a concentrated subject or, uh, substance. That might even be just an idea. Like when we started our church, it was, it was just an idea of what this could look like that eventually permeated the entire being of what we are as a church. Okay, so we prove this out all the time. But if this is true, and I believe it is, and if this is true of the church, what does that mean? It means that we must turn our perspective. This is what the Old Testament view of the kingdom was. Okay, this is a lot of review, but just to kind of bring you where we're going. This is what the Old Testament view of the kingdom was. Habakkuk 2.14 that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So where does this knowledge start? From where does the water of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord flow from? Where is it coming from? This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, or excuse me, 2, verses 6 through 12, he says this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it's written... What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended, the things that God has planned for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But what we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Here's what's interesting. In verse 11, when it says, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, but we've been given the Spirit of God, that word knows is the same word in the Greek as the Greek Septuagint version of Habakkuk uses for knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
So Habakkuk has a view of, and Isaiah also, in Isaiah, I think it's 11, Isaiah 11, um, 11, 9, has a view of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge is gnosko in Greek. It's, it's an um, intimate, experiential knowledge. What Paul says is the church has received that knowledge, okay? So what does Paul say? He's saying to the church that we've been given the knowledge of the things of God. Maybe we could say the knowledge of God's glory. And then, according to Habakkuk and Isaiah, who says the same thing, that knowledge is aiming at the entire earth. So Paul says the earth contains the knowledge of God. Habakkuk says that knowledge is going to cover the earth. Therefore, if the church contains what the earth does not yet contain, but the aim of what the church contains is the entire earth, what can we determine? That what is in the church is ultimately designed to be outside of the church, namely covering the entire earth. So now that we've done a little bit of groundwork and review, what do we see Paul saying here in Colossians? Well, first, I want to point out this. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, Colossians 1, 26, the mystery throughout the ages that has been hidden has now been revealed to us. I got to take this off. I'm roasting. Are y'all hot in here? Oh, okay. Well, I'm dying. So, um, and apparently that's a good thing because Paul said die. Um, I'm just joking. That was a dad joke. So, I want you to hear the magnitude of this. There has been a mystery. Now, of course, he's writing this to the church, to you know the Colossians, but this is applicable to us as well. There's been a mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages and every generation that has now been revealed through the saints. That's, that's huge. There has been a mystery of God, and not just a mystery, the mystery of God has been hidden throughout all the ages that is now being revealed in us. And what is the mystery? And when you see this, and we said it earlier, so you know, y'all got an idea. But when we see this, it doesn't seem like much. The mystery is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. Now, because we have the lullaby effect, and most of us have been in church our whole lives, we see Christ in us and we're like, oh, that's great, amazing. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. That's, that, that's the mystery, Christ in us. But, but then he goes on in verse 28 and says that that mystery has been revealed so that we may present everyone as mature in Christ. So the mystery has been unveiled to the saints so that through the saints, the mystery might be unveiled to everyone. And the mystery is Christ in us. So Christ in us has been made known to us so that we may make known Christ in us to everyone else around us. Let me, let me read a couple of quotes for you. This is uh, from Karl Barth's Christ and Adam. I feel like I can't preach a sermon unless I quote Karl Barth. Um, but he's great. 
This is what he says. He, Jesus, reconciles them, who is us, with God through his death. Now hear what he's about to say because this is completely different than what most of us grew up with. That means, if he's reconciled us, that means in his own death, he makes their peace with God before they themselves have decided for this peace and quite apart from that decision. Jesus has reconciled us with God through his death. And that means that through his death, he made our peace with God before we had a decision for that peace. And not only that, quite apart from that decision. So in believing, we are not only conforming to the decision about us that has already been made in him. We are only, not we are not only. In believing in Jesus, what we are doing is conforming to the decision about us that has already been made and determined in him. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're not doing something that was at one time not true of you. You're coming into agreement with what has been true of you since the cross. That's not what we told people. You know what I'm saying? We told people that you were bound for hell until you repeat the prayer. I know, well, I know I'm saying some danger. I'm about to get in some sketchy territory. Right? Huh? You're, everybody's sinners and bound for hell. What? Says who? Says who? John McCarthy. No, never mind. Right? Huh? I, I'm feel, I feel a little edgy today. You know what I'm saying? Who, said who? We're just all sinners. I'm not. I mean, if he, I, I'm not. Me and Brandon had this conversation another day. So uh, people will say this all the time. I sin every day, so I'm a sinner. Okay. Man, I wish I had my eraser. I don't have a clue where it is. Let's see. Oh, here it is. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit revealed it. Just kidding. All right. It's funny. I had somebody prophesy over me at So to See yesterday. <laughs> Said I had inner turmoil. I don't have any inner turmoil. Um, so this is, this is just really interesting. Okay, let's say, because most of us grew up in just a religion of moralism. All that means is it's a religion that's measured by the good or the bad deeds that you do. It's basically what most of us, the churches we grew up in, um, by biblical definition, were less Christian than they were necessarily like moralism, more closely related probably to like Buddhism. You know what I'm saying? And so, so, so if that's true, though, let's just, let's just pretend that's, that's even you know, true. Let's say moralism. Okay, moralism is basically a chart, and here's bad things that you do, and here's good things that you do. And it judges whichever side has the most is basically who you are. Even if that were true, even if that's the case, which is not, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? But even if that were true, let's say during the course of a day, 
you tell a lie. And then you speed, okay? And then, I don't know, what, what are some of the stuff y'all do? You know what I'm saying? Okay, look at pornography. And, uh, get get, okay, get angry. And again, I'm not saying you should do any of this stuff, okay? It's just, you know, what I, I'm, I'm just trying to prove a point, okay? Um, you know, all right, so let's just, you know, you lust, you, you envy people who have Teslas. The fact that we have a hard time coming up with stuff is kind of proving my point, but this, let's just say this, okay? And you could even throw in, like, the, the really bad stuff, too, you know, like stealing money or whatever, but, but let's just give you a few more. Just, you know, yeah. Okay, so we'll just give you a bunch of extra ones. Now, I'm just trying to prove you. If, if this is the case, but you do, on, and you don't even think about it because we're trained to not think about it, you do much more good on a daily basis than you do bad. I promise you. I know every one of you. So every time, I'll just use me, every time we wake up and we get our daughter out of bed and tell her we love her, love her. every time I'm good to my wife, every time I say hey to my neighbors, every time you know, I'll tell you know, maybe one of my neighbors about Jesus, every time I pray over somebody, every time you, you know, read your Bible, every time you uh, tithe, every time you, I mean, I don't know, you do all, breathing is a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, honoring your money, doing a budget. We talked about this this morning. That's a good thing. You're stewarding what God has given you, right? Um, treating people around you with respect, doing a great job at your work. Except, I mean, you could go on and on and on and on and on. My point is, is that if you had a tracker tracking your life, I promise you, I, I mean, everything that you do as good would make all the bad things look like absolutely nothing if that was the standard of how we live. Which is not. But even the moralistic argument doesn't stand. You're bad because you do bad stuff. Well, what about all the more good stuff that you do that way outweighs the bad stuff? Wouldn't that mean, according to that standard, that you're actually good? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? So so what I want to do is, A, I want to help you to see that, number one, none of you are bad. And if you ever feel this thing on the inside of you, mostly because of how you grew up, but if you ever feel this thing on the inside of you that says, you know, because I've done this and 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 this, boy, I really have disappointed God. What if you could just simply shift that? Because we ignore all the good stuff we do. We, complete, we're, we're, we completely ignore it. At no point do we ever sit around and say, man, I was really nice to that person. We, just, we don't do that. You know what I'm saying? And we call it humility. That's not humility. It's false humility. But you know what I'm saying? It's okay to sit around and be proud of the person that God's making you to be. But because we don't do this, We'll focus on the five things that we've done in a day and say, well, God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know what I'm saying? And Paul says, Jesus may not have done anything morally that was sinful, but Paul says, Jesus became sin. Not just, Jesus didn't do sin. Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So Paul's dealing with this, and here's what he says. He says um, in verses, where am I? Mystery hidden from the hope of glory. All right, 
In chapter two, he says this. When you were dead in 13, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him and he forgave us all the trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That wasn't enough. He disarmed the rulers and authorities of it and made a public example or spectacle of them triumphing over them. Jesus, by becoming this stuff, not only did he do this right here, he got every one of them on his back and marched them through the ages as a public spectacle, making an example of the fact that he has put an end to them. That not only has Christ defeated death, Christ has made a spectacle of it. He's made it a joke. Not only has he defeated sin, he's made it a ever-loving joke. Why don't we, why do we take someone's actions or our own actions and leverage them to say something ontologically about a human being? Ontology is the study of, of existence. We believe that Adam's fall was more powerful than the declaration in the beginning by God himself that we are very good. That makes no sense on any level. Psalm 8 says that we are created slightly lower than God, which means there is nothing we could do or say that would overpower what is above us and the declaration that is above us. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, Isaiah 55 says. So when God says, very good, there is absolutely nothing, no power, no action, no authority, no running, no delusion that can change what God has determined as true. Because Jesus says, I am the truth. So what is true about any person outside of those doors? We make it this, and Jesus says, it's neither of these, it's me. I am the truth. I am the way, and no one gets to the Father except through me. And we even made that good or bad stuff. No one gets to the Father except through me. So you better know. There is, there is no follow-up. You know what I'm saying? It's not Jesus is the way to the Father, so you better do this and you better do this. and you better. What we're saying by saying that is Jesus plus this and this and this and this and this and this and this is how you get to the Father. And Jesus says, no, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one gets there except through me. And then what does he do? He becomes sin. He nails it to the cross. He makes a public spectacle of all of it, every ruler, every authority. He nails it. He triumphs over it. And now our lives are hidden in Christ. And if our lives are hidden in Christ and Christ is the way to the Father, guess what? We've made our way to the Father. By what? What? By what? What did we do? We were born. That's it. 
and you were born, and because your existence is in Christ, guess what? You found your way to the Father. Now, what power does sin have over us? It has no power at all. In fact, if I could help you, this now, because of what has happened in Christ, is a lie. It's, a delu- it's, it's delusion. So now we define people not by delusions. This is what St. Athanasius says, okay? 335 CE, AD. <clears throat> CE is what most people use now, if you didn't know that. Did y'all know that? I didn't know that until recently. Common error, yeah. So it's BCE and CE now rather than BC and AD. Not that it matters, but that's just what a lot of people are using. So anyway, he did this, St. Athanasius says, he did this, Jesus, in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally finished. A marvelous, listen, this is so awesome. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which we thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. (laughs) Huh? One more time. Can I just read this one more time? A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which we thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. Athanasius is saying, we thought we were killing God. Or we didn't believe he was God, that's why we killed him, you know what I'm saying? But we thought we were killing a man. And in killing Jesus, we were actually killing death. That, huh? Again, how many of you ever even heard of St. Athanasius growing up? You know what I'm saying? We would not have Trinity theology if it weren't for St. Athanasius. None of us ever heard about St. Athanasius. You know what I'm saying? We heard about uh, Jonathan Edwards. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I heard about that in public school. Sinners in the hands of an neighboring. Why didn't we hear about St. Athanasius in public school? And then we wondered why all those school kids didn't want to go to church when they grew up. Sinners in the hands of every God. Um, let me read one more quote to you. Are y'all, are y'all okay? I'm on, I promise I'm almost done. I just, I just um, love this. This is uh, Douglas Campbell it's in his book about Paul. Um, he's a professor at Duke Divinity School. I've been saying Wheaton College. I've been wrong. Um, Duke Divinity School. But this is what he says. He says, All human societies function conditionally and legally in certain respects, and states have a particular fondness for doing things this way. Few, has, excuse me, few have been as organized as ours. The reach of modern bureaucracies can be a little terrifying, but all states have rules that are enforceable if they are broken. Moreover, commerce generally depends on contracts, and our modern society is, again, rife with this mode of relating, although it is by no means unique. In a commercial contract, 
we undertake to fulfill certain conditions to receive things in exchange. Y'all follow me? And if we don't fulfill these conditions, then we don't receive what we contracted to get and vice versa. This all feels very natural to us, although it is entirely cultural. But what happens if we structure God's relationship with us in this way? Contractually, because we think deep down that God relates to us like a ruler upholding some program of law and order. If God relates to us conditionally through a contract in a religious way, then God no longer loves us. We must be talking about another sort of God. Certainly, we are not talking about the God who is definitively revealed by Jesus. Love is not conditional. We have just seen this in the part before this. When we talked about healthy families and deep relationships, love is irrevocable. It is unconditional. It never gives up, never lets go. If we introduce conditions into our relationships with people, then we only love them if they fulfill those conditions. And how many of us are guilty of having relationships like that? I am. How many of us are guilty of having relationships with people as long as they, and we don't ever think this way, but give us what we need? You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many, I mean, how many people in the South have left churches because they weren't getting what they thought they needed? You know what I mean? All contractual. If they break those conditions, we stop loving them. If only, or excuse me, if God only loves us when we fulfill certain conditions, then God has to be conditioned into loving us, and this is quite a limited situation. God's fundamental attitude toward us, to which he will immediately return if the right conditions are not fulfilled, is something different than love and is presumably just. This is moreover how God relates to most people since most people in history have not been members of the church. Now, justice is okay, but it can be very harsh and it certainly isn't love and love based on the fulfillment of certain conditions isn't love either. I am not a husband or a parent because love, uh, excuse me, I'm not a husband or a parent who loves his family because my spouse and my children fulfill certain conditions. Our relationships are not based on contracts or justice. My family can do nothing to break this relationship. It is a covenant, not a contract, and God is just the same. Love is higher than justice as the heavens are higher than the earth. Is the God revealed in Jesus fundamentally loving or not? Of course he is loving. Think about this. Like Hannah and Tim are right here. I would dare to say, maybe I'm wrong, but I would dare say that their love for each other is not based on a contract of, Tim, well, if you do this, then I'll love you. I mean, maybe it is. I'm just kidding. You know what I'm saying? Hannah, if you, if you do this, but if you break it, we're separated forever. No? Huh? They love each other in better or worse. 
sickness, or in health, for rich or for poor. Huh? Or my relationship with Veda. If I told you today that this is how our family operates, um, Veda has a list of things, we call it our law, that she has to keep. And if she breaks this, and I happen to be in a bad mood that day, she's completely cut off from us forever. Now, what if I told you all that? You would call 911. Now, now, why would you do that? I thought we were like God. Huh? I mean, I'm serious. Now, I mean, why, why would you do that? It's who God is, right? God's a father. Because something on the inside of us knows what's right. There's something deep down on the inside of us that knows what's right, and yet, for some reason, we are afraid of it. We're afraid of a God who loves us unconditionally. We'll sing songs about a God who loves us unconditionally, and then we'll preach messages about all the conditions we have to keep in order to stay in God's love. Isn't that weird? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And then it's, if you don't do this, you know what I'm saying? No, it's, it's just the love of God. Now, I said every single bit of that to now talk about what do we do with it? Every bit of that. Because the argument is always, and by the way, none of this, for anybody listening to this later, I have no interest in debating what happens in hell, what happens in heaven, who goes to where, who goes, none of that's in scripture. And so I have no interest in talking about that. So anybody who's taking anything I'm saying is saying, oh, he's making a statement about who goes where. I don't care. I, like, I, I mean, I care, but I'm saying like as a scholar, as a, on a scholarly level, I don't care about having that conversation and neither did anybody in the early church. So, you know what I'm saying? This is, not talk, this is talking about God. This is not talking about who goes where. Because again, that comes back to exactly what we think in the church. It's a tally. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. God does. I'm not God. I'm created slightly lower than God. So, now that we've been invited into, though, a view of who God is that is unconditional, you get into the meat of what Paul is encouraging, not just in Colossians, but throughout all of his letters. And this is what he says. So if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Why do you submit to the law? You have to sum up that whole thing and, you know, keeping this religion and all this other stuff. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. What is Paul saying? That they, they were not Christian dualists. Most of us are, not us. Most of the church is Christian dualism, Platonism, but we're not Christian dualists and neither was Paul. Dualism, Platonism is there is the natural and it's evil and you try to get away from it. And then there's a devil that's equal to God and an evil power, whatever you want to call it. And then there's God and good versus evil and the spirit, the ghost, that's the good stuff. And you're, the whole goal of life is to get away from the natural and get into the spirit. That's called Christian dualism. Okay. We're not Christian dualists. Neither was Paul. Um, they didn't even have that back then. Um, I guess they had Plato, but it wasn't merged with Christianity yet. And um, so what Paul is trying to get them to see is something ontological 
Okay? Study of existence. Something ontological has happened in Christ. And what is that? Our identity has been, here's the key, permanently. How do you spell permanent? Somebody help me. Is it A-N-T? Is that right? Yeah. Without my computer, I don't know how to spell. Our identity has been permanently restored. And not only has it been restored, it's been held safe, let's say secure, because now it's hidden in Christ. So two things happen because we're now hidden in Christ. Number one, our identity has been restored. Number two, not only that, it is now held securely hidden in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So Paul says, something ontologically has happened in the death and resurrection and the incarnation of Christ. And it is that we have been restored. Now his argument goes from that to If you have been restored, why on earth would you go back to living like you are a slave to the powers that have been put to death? You're no longer a slave. Therefore, live your life and your mind. Live them on things that are above where Christ is seated. And I said this last week. So, for example, this is where Christianity becomes the microcosm of humanity. This is where what is contained in the church and those that are in the church starts to permeate the entire batch. Because, for example, I used this last week, um, lying or cheating. Those things are not just things that you need to do in order to stay in good graces with God. Right? Right? Those things are things that any human being on planet Earth needs to do for their good. Do you see this? Um, do not murder. Okay, that's a, good, that's a great thing for people across the board, in or out of the church. What the law even has done is it has created that microcosm of what humanity in the beginning was really intended to be. Remember what Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. In other words, what is contained in the garden and what is contained within Adam and Eve is intended to be that which defines the entire creation. Okay? So, the microcosm of Israel and the law, and now for us, the church is intended to be the place where the pure concentration of what it really means to be human is made known so that ultimately it can cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So what Paul is saying is, and then if you get into, if you get, once you get 30, you have to make that noise once you do anything. Um, when you get into chapter 3, He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is in you that is earthly. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Here we go again. Now, even when I read that verse, did you see the kickback within you? 
Because the natural tendency is to say that the wrath of God is aimed at those who are disobedient. The wrath of God, Paul says, is aimed at disobedience. And disobedience doesn't get to define you. You've been defined very good. Nothing else gets to define you. So the wrath of God that is coming after these things and those who are disobedient is an amazing thing because the wrath is coming after all the stuff that is keeping you enslaved to something that you are not enslaved to anymore. So if I'm stealing, for example, then the wrath of God coming after that which is in me that feels like it needs to steal stuff is an amazing thing. Do you see what I'm saying? If I'm, you know, uh, uh, cheating on my wife, then the wrath of God coming after the thing that causes me to feel like I need to do that in my life is an amazing thing. Why? Because the wrath of God is aiming at the restoration of your rightful place in Christ where you are. So I'm trying, here's what I'm trying to communicate with you guys is that when we disconnect ourselves from Western religion and we start to root ourselves in simple biblical teaching and theology, we see a picture that God is actually for us. God is for us. We say that all the time. But if I'm a dad and my daughter is disobeying me, right? We don't go after our daughter as in cutting her off. We go after the disobedience. Why? Because we want to keep her in harmony with us. And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more? Do you see what I'm saying? And this is what Paul is trying to communicate, is that there is no reason for you to get circumcised, for you to follow all the laws, for you to not eat pork, for you to not do all this stuff to remain in good relationship with God. Don't touch this. Don't look at this. Don't drink this. Don't say this. Every single thing that needs to happen for you to be reconciled to God has taken place. Now that that has taken place, Let's live as if we know who we really are. Christ did not sin, yet Paul says he became sin. How can you be sin and never commit a moral wrong? Think, I mean, think about it. He became sin. Yeah, He became sin, and yet he did nothing in disobedience. How does does that work? Unless this whole thing of sin and disobedience is speaking to something other than what most of us think it's talking about. What if in sin and disobedience, the aim is this is what is true about you, This is where you are. 
Here comes the wrath of God to rip you from where you are and reseat you in who you really are, hidden in Christ. What if we told young people that were in youth group, what if we told them instead of saying, no, 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 because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow and God happens to come back or whatever the case may be, where will you be? Hopefully you're not looking at stuff you shouldn't. Better get you some sight blockers or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Instead, what if we said, this is who you are, taught them who you are, and then let them see for themselves the contrast of where they are living and who they really are. Because when you start to compare those things, suddenly you don't see yourself as worthless anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like when you see the length at which God goes to day in and day out to bring you to a place where you realize who you are and you are held secure in who you are, there is no way that you can look at yourself and say that you are worthless in the eyes of God. It's impossible. He did not withhold his only son for us. Before the world can understand the ontological transformation and reconciliation that has happened in Christ, we must understand it. If we don't get it, they will not get it. That is the plan of God. The plan of God for the kingdom to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea is for us to get it and us getting it becomes the dare for them to get it. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I don't want you to ever believe this was hap- what's happening in this room and what's been happening in this room is nothing. That is worth because of the amount of people or because of, you know, the amount of ministry we are or not doing or whatever the case. I don't want you to ever believe this what's happening, that what is happening in here is absolutely pointless because of what the earth tells us a church should be measured by. What's happening in the room is yeast is being formed and concentrated so that when we become convinced that we are His, we can go to the people around us and convince them that they are His. Christ in us is incarnation language. So, Isaiah, you can hop up here. So what does it mean to you and me that Christ is in you, living and moving through you. What does that mean? It means, Colossians 2.13, that God has made you alive with Christ. Paul is pushing us to come into agreement with what is real, our lives in Christ, by focusing on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, which is to say that that he is God. I love what the Lord is doing through this. And it's scary sometimes because I can feel, I can feel the pushback. You know what I mean? Because we've been so trained to think evil first. This is why most of the church believes in a doctrine of original sin. The the doctrine of original sin, especially if you grew up in a Pentecostal church, you believed the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is that when Adam and Eve sinned, 
okay? Which, by the way, was taking a bite of a piece of fruit. That when Adam and Eve sinned, that something on the identity level changed in every single human being, past, present, and future, and that we are all innately evil because of that until, for most, we die and go to heaven one day. That something happened in Adam and Eve that changed the genetic makeup of us. That, that's totally illegal, theologically. The book starts with very good. And that declaration was made not by a man, but by God. And what God declares, no man, no power, no devil, no evil can come into and change. Isaiah also says this, Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 12. Don't quote me on this because I'm totally going from my uh, memory and I haven't read Isaiah in a while. But I think it's Isaiah 12 that says that God has no rival. God has no rival. We sing it all the time. You have no rival. You have no equal. You better be careful. You have no equal. The implication of that is that God is the sole one that has a say in everything. He's the only one. The devil has no say, never did. <laughs> Me and you have no say. You can run and reject as much as you want and he chases us down with a rejection of our rejection. And I promise you, God's no will beat our no every time. This is what, this is what happened. What if you, as a child, we see these stories all the time of kids that were born of parents that were given up for adoption. They never met their parents. They go the rest of their lives. And there comes a point somewhere later on in life where some of these kids finally meet their biological parents. Have you, you've seen these stories like in the news sometimes, right? Um, and they finally meet their biological parents. And every time you'll see them, every time if you see a video of it, they weep, they embrace. They've never at any point ever until that point known their biological parents. And every time it triggers something in them to know this is home. How do you, how do you make sense of that? Because you could run your entire life, but you cannot outrun who you are. You can run and run and run and run and run and run, but at the end of the day, you bear the image of your father and you are very good. Now, why am I saying this to a room full of people that get this for the most part? I'm saying this because we have to not only understand this and begin to live in it, we need to embrace this in such a way that we begin to be the megaphone, the instrument by which this kind of love begins to permeate the culture that is around us. How does that happen? We begin to love people around us unconditionally. 
I said every bit of the past hour to get to that point right there. That if we are loved with an unconditional love, the only way that we can bear the image of a God who loves us unconditionally is to love unconditionally. How do we do? How do we love people without expecting things in return? How do we love people without expecting if they don't do this and this and this and this, I cut it off? What if we approached all of our relationships and said, if I never get one thing out of this relationship, I still choose you? Like, what does a church look like that says that? If you never play the style of music that I like, I still choose this family. God help us. You know what I'm saying? If you never preach hellfire and brimstone, which I will not, then I, you know what I'm saying? I will not preach hell hot. I will preach God good, but I won't preach hell hot. And love people unconditionally. What, what, would, what would we say? I, I mentioned this. I, I've mentioned this to a lot of you when we talk about tithing, for example. And uh, there's been years that I would give to churches that I didn't agree with most of what they believed. I didn't agree with a lot of what they did with my own money. But I still gave, I say I, we, me and Jordan, we still gave above and beyond what the Lord wants us to give. Now, why would we do that if we don't agree with it? Because it wasn't about what they do with our money. It was about us saying, this is what we do because we are in Christ and living secured in Christ. And you could take, I mean, you could take my money and light it on fire outside. It's not about what you do with my money. You know what I'm saying? And that's hard to say when you see your money being spent on a lot of stuff you don't agree with. But you know what I'm saying? Like you light it on fire. I don't care what you do with it. I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving it to him. And the way I get it to him is to give it through you. You know what I'm saying? This is what Jesus says when he says, you have heard it said to love those who love you and hate those who hate you, but I'm telling you to love your enemies. Why would you love your enemies? Because this is how we know what love is. Christ loved us first. Love you, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm preaching this as somebody who's working on all this because I have a hard time loving my enemies. But um, I feel like the Lord is moving us to a place. I was telling Isaiah this this week. Um, for five years, I've had to fight this, what is, you know, I've been trained to, to think, knee-jerk reaction to church. But I've had to fight this knee-jerk reaction of feeling like we are a failure because of the numbers. You know what I'm saying? Because that's just how I've always been trained. And, um, and even I'll have conversation with like very well-meaning people um, that will essentially basically say that. And, um, and so I've had to fight that over and over and over until recently where I feel, and it's really come in this whole season when the Lord said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And there was something about reading that about three weeks ago, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that things begin to click. We are yeast. And it takes a while for that yeast to permeate the entire batch, but it is guaranteed that that yeast will eventually permeate the entire batch. 
So ignite the flame of longing. Teach me to wait, you know? But Jesus not only says that, he said, and I'll end with this. He not only says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. He goes on to say, if I can find it in my Bible. And if not, I can quote it. Yeah. He says this in Matthew 13, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is also like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. It's the smallest of all churches. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Can I, let me just say it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their home in it. And then he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. I, th I think we've done the world a disservice by writing them off because of what the world has done. And we forget that Jesus found every single one of us when we were at our worst. You know what I'm saying? We, let's go find the people around us at their worst even and love them anyway and that be the catalyst for the yeast to begin to permeate the entire batch. Have you ever uh, paid for some, maybe you haven't done this. I've only done it a few times. Have you ever paid for somebody's groceries? So if you, if you wanna experiment, now you gotta plan it right, especially if you have a tight budget because you'll plan on doing that and you'll get behind, or, you know, somebody behind you will have just you know, astronomical amount of groceries which happened to me once. And uh, I was like, man, I'd love to buy your groceries. And I look at the shopping cart and I'm like, no, 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 you know. And um, no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, <laughs> oh my Lord. And um, so anyway, but if you've ever paid for somebody's groceries, um, typically, at least this happened a couple of times for me, um, you'll pay for their groceries. And then guess what that person does? Because they didn't have to pay for their groceries, they'll pay for the next person's groceries. This happened to me actually in a Dunkin' Donuts line one time. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna pay for the person behind me. So I paid for it. It was just one coffee, praise God. Um, but I prayed for it. It's not about the money. Um, I paid for it. And then as I drove up, I just was watching in my rear view mirror because I had to wait for mine. And uh, I was looking in my rear view mirror and I saw her point back and pay for the person behind her in this car. My point is, is that one act of love permeates. I'm sure you see this at school all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just something about treating a student with respect that suddenly they just begin to start changing. You know what I mean? Especially students if they're not used to being treated with respect. I'm sure you see this, Angela, a lot with what you do. It's like suddenly somebody actually cares about what these people are saying and that becomes its own leaven that begins to permeate. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, this is, I think this is what's happening even in us is that there's just a little shift 
that there is nothing you could do to disappoint the Father that suddenly makes you live like you could ask and receive anything that you set your mind to. So I could talk about this all day, but I know y'all tired because time changed. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll be done. Lord, I I just, um, I honor you for the fact that you are reaching through the ages and you're delivering to us a gift. And that gift is the mystery that was hidden up until it was revealed through the New Testament church. And now you are re-revealing it to us. And that all of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for us to be unveiled. I believe our unveiling is directly related to the mystery of Christ in us being unveiled in us first. And so, Lord, I pray that this week that you would give every one of us opportunities to not only, A, make the decision to believe this for ourselves as it relates to you. There is no condition. If it's a covenant, there's no condition. You entered into a covenant with Abraham knowing Abraham would fail, and he did fail. And his kids failed, and his great-grandkids failed, and all of the nation of Israel failed. And here's how you responded. You became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because of it's a covenant. You can't break a covenant, for better or worse. And so, God, I pray that we would live with covenant love for those around us, even the people that are we would call maybe our enemies. Start with me. But, Lord, who are those around us that we need to love with the same love that you have loved us with? But then beyond that, I pray that us as a church would live in covenantal love. And we do this very, very well. But I pray that we would even go deeper into what that looks like, that we would hold no one to a certain condition in order to love or accept them, that we would love each other in spite of any condition that's broken or upheld, that we would love with a love that is so strong that when people look at us, they see unity. And you said in John 17 that it was by our unity, the world would know that we are yours and they are yours. It's unity. And unity can only happen in unconditional love, I really believe. And so God, I thank you for what you're doing, um, not just in us and not just through us, but you're doing in the earth. And I believe the half has not been told. So we love you and honor you in your name. Amen.